Can you recall a time where you misunderstood someone? You heard the word spoken to you, and you heard them rightly. It wasn't a case of some hearing impairment resulting in you misunderstanding. It was a matter of you hearing the words and then just misinterpreting them. Like someone spoke to you, you heard the exact words they said, and you just completely misinterpreted what they said. Maybe you didn't understand the context. Maybe for one reason or another, you just didn't put it together. So they said something to you, you heard it, and you completely misunderstood what they were saying. It's like an instance that a parent had shared on Twitter a couple of years ago, sometime in 2020, uh, saying that their toddler, I don't know if this was a dad or a mom, but their toddler was about to hit their head on a bar at the playground. So the parent told their child to duck. And then the child said, quack. (laughs) And then the child went on to hit their head. Uh, They heard the words. The toddler heard the words that were spoken, but just didn't interpret the context rightly. It wasn't, you know, a call to quack. It was a call to, like, move your head lower because you're about to hit your head. And I think of that in light of what we're about to study, especially the first um, verses here in Psalm 18, verses 20 through 24. Because I think many a Christian can read Psalm 18, verses 20 through 24, and they can quietly wonder whether or not David has abandoned the principle of grace whereby a believer's relationship is established with God. And to form that conclusion would be to seriously hit your head, theologically speaking. Context is key. And once we see what David is saying here, we not only avoid, if you, if you will, the hurt that comes with misinterpretation, but then we can enjoy the fruit of proper and sound interpretation. We'll get there shortly. So before we get into the text, let's briefly recall where we have been. We are about 40% through Psalm 18. Technically, we are 38% through Psalm 18. There's 50 verses, right? So 2% of verse, we went through 19. So we are 38% of the way through Psalm 18. And my hope is, this is is one of my big hopes already, that your appreciation of the communicative potency of biblical poetry has been augmented. I hope you feel the power of what's communicated via poetry in the Scriptures in a fresh way. Having seen already, to use language from one commentator, that God moves heaven and earth for the sake of His own. That you are moved and that you are inspired in a fresh way in your walk with Christ. You know, in the process, we took our time through David's ascriptions of God. You know, how he ascribed God to be his rock and so on. We also saw so many poetic descriptions of God. And we've gotten to behold the majesty, the greatness, the glory, the uniqueness of God, which is why I said during the announcement portion of our service that if you haven't listened to the first three messages in Psalm 18, or if you have, maybe you should go back and re-listen to them, because you see the uniqueness and the glory and the majesty of God communicated in unique poetic ways. And I think that's so important. To kind of borrow language from the psalmist, right? Those who create idols and those who worship idols, they they become like those idols. And there's that principle that sometimes works itself out, that you become like what you worship. So the more that you behold the living God through the revelation of Scripture, if you are a believer and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, the hope is, the expectation is, is that you will grow more in the likeness of God. 
As you behold Him, you glorify Him, you stand in wonder and reverent awe when you see who He is and you're conformed more so to the image of Christ as a result. I think to me, my opinion, seeing what we've studied, if you go through those messages in Psalm 18, and I think particularly, I guess I think particularly of all three of them, maybe the last two, even a little bit more so, I think that you see the literary equivalent, my opinion, of kind of beholding a sunset or beholding a sunrise, or looking at Niagara Falls, or the Aurora Borealis. You're beholding beauty. Only you're beholding the beauty not of creation, but of the uncreated One as He reveals Himself through Scripture. Behold His beauty and be changed as a result. That's a message in itself. You could just go through examples in the Scriptures and see people that had close encounters, if you will, with the living God and see how it just brings about a change, right? Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and all of a sudden realizes that he is a sinful man. Woe is me. Not that he didn't know he was a sinful man before, but his sinfulness and the sinfulness of his lips came to his mind. Peter, right? Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man in Luke 5. Just seeing God as he's revealed in the Scriptures, can produce such great humility, can produce worship and awe. We've also seen, and don't forget this, this is so important. So that's one of the reasons to go back. It's one of the reasons not to forget what we've studied. But we've also seen reminders of the God-appointed potency of prayer. David cries out to God. And you see that in verse 6. And then all of a sudden, the events that follow are triggered, at least within the context of the psalm, by those prayers. It's as though though David cries out, and the cords of death that were dragging him to his demise, to use language from Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5, were cut, and rescue ensued. It was like creation trembled and bowed as the God of Mount Sinai interposed to levy hailstones and coals and fire and lightnings upon David's enemies. It was like, if you remember, the Exodus event. It was like God just kind of ripped open space and time and had His hand reach down and grab David out from many waters. It was as though David's enemies confronted him. But God was His support right alongside of him. And God delivered them and defeated his enemies. Delivered David and defeated his enemies. And that gets us closer to where we left off. And why did God deliver David? Well, to use David's words inspired by the Holy Spirit, he delivered me because he delighted in me. Psalm 18, verse 19. Now, to be clear, we know that God did not set His affection on David from before the foundation of the world because of works of righteousness that David had done or that God knew that David would do. You could look in a place like 2 Timothy 1.9 to just see that principle clearly stated through declarative text. David, like Noah, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Right? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6.8. And David did as well. And as Paul noted, David described, quote, the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So Paul was saying David gets it. David gets that God, right? Just like, just like Abraham got it, that he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness as revealed in Genesis 15, 6. Paul says David himself 
declared the blessedness, described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he goes on to quote David's words from Psalm 32, the opening of Psalm 32. So that's not the kind of delight that's in view here. To be sure, I would say it's the fertile soil that brought forth the yields of righteousness, but it appears to be those yields that are in view. Do you grab that? So when David says here, God delivered me because he delighted in me, I'm saying we're not talking here about the eternal delight that God had in his elect before the foundation of the world. In the context here, I'm saying it's the fruit of righteousness that springs forth from that electing grace. And I think that bears itself out very clearly in the context. We'll see that as we get into it. We begin in Psalm 18, verses 20 through 24, where we read, The Lord, or Yahweh, rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, or Yahweh, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His judgments were before me, and I did not put away His statutes from me. I was also blameless before Him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord, or Yahweh, has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. So again, it's not hard to see how a Christian could misunderstand what David is saying here. So before I exposit those verses, what I want to do is want to clear some debris from the roadway of understanding. So as we get into the text, we can just establish certain things here that David is not saying. Let's move the debris from the roadway. So this way, as we travel down the roadway of understanding, it's a smooth road. So the first thing I want to say is this. David knew that he was not sinless. It's very clear. So when David is talking about his righteousness here, he's not talking about sinless perfection. You could look in a place like Psalm 143 verse 2, where David said, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. So David is not appealing to some sort of intrinsic righteousness that he had, some intrinsic righteousness that he preserved by ongoing subsequent obedience without fail. David acknowledged that no one is righteous in God's sight. So I'm going to argue very clearly what David is talking about here is what he was talking about in Psalm 17 when we studied Psalm 17. A relative righteousness. Relative to a specific situation. Relative to specific individuals, namely his enemies. As opposed to a perfect righteousness. Because David knew that no one was righteous. David is not saying that God delivered him because he had never sinned. So second... Just to make it clear, David was not speaking, in verses 20 through 24, he was not speaking about eternal salvation and the forgiveness of sins. That's not what he's talking about. When he says, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, he's not saying, God has given me eternal life and forgiveness of sins because of my righteousness. That's not what he is saying at all. He's talking about temporal deliverance from enemies. That's what the whole context has been, right? The context hasn't been about being delivered from the wrath of God. The whole context is about being delivered from enemies. So again, David's not speaking about eternal salvation or forgiveness of sins. He was making reference to the deliverance from temporal enemies in conjunction with and as a reward for righteous behavior. Again, relative with respect to his horizontal interactions with them. Third thing, 
David knew, and this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's just helpful for us to know, David knew there was more at work in his deliverance than simply himself. I get that from 2 Samuel 5.12. So David knew that the Lord, or Yahweh, had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom, which would include the defeat of enemies, for the sake of his people Israel. David knew that. So that's a little bit of an aside. It's not so much with the exp- going with the exposition here, but I just want us to know that. David knew that he was a sinner. David wasn't talking about eternal salvation in these verses and the forgiveness of sins. And David knew that even his deliverance and exaltation was not about simply him. God was doing it for the sake of his people Israel. So there was more at work, even in David's deliverance. Which I just think is a a, a neat reminder of the ripple effects of how God's exaltation of David led to the good of the people of Israel. And in that way, and there are are many ways, David reminds me of Christ. right? Because in Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of the Father, oh, the good that that is for the people of God. That our advocate is at the right hand of the Father that He ever lives to make intercession for us, that He poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and continues to send the Holy Spirit to bring new birth from above. The exaltation of Christ is connected to the good of God's people. Fourth, I do want to say this. Before expositing the words of this passage, it is worth noting that it lines up with God's overall estimation of David. God knew that David was a sinner. God, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had the portion of 2 Samuel written and inspired concerning David's sin with Bathsheba and towards Uriah and so on. God knew that David was a sinner. David knew that David was a sinner. But nonetheless, in a passage like 1 Kings 14, verse 8, we read, My servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. So if we were to think, wow, this, these words in you know, Psalm 18, verses 20 through 24 are a little bit too strong. Well, you've got to read verses like 1 Kings 14.8 and say, well, this lines up with God's overall estimation of David without excusing his sin, but nonetheless giving him a kind of overall look, an overall representation of who he was. That's how God describes him. Okay, with that being said, and you've already, I think, gotten the answer to this by what I've said already, what is David saying here? Well, to build on the second point, David was essentially stating that while he was not sinless, he was blameless with respect to the matters that his enemies accused him of, and God dealt with him according to his righteous behavior. I think, you want want to see this encapsulated in David's thinking? 1 Samuel 26, verse 23 is a great example of this to show you how this is what David was thinking. He had an opportunity to slay King Saul. Saul was the king of Israel. And David had an opportunity to kill the one who was pursuing him. David had already been anointed to be king of Israel, but he wasn't going to take matters into his own hands. He had the opportunity to slay Saul, and he didn't. And on that occasion, he told Saul this, May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness. And his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. See, that's the kind of thing that's represented here in Psalm 18, verses 20 through 24. 
David's righteousness, for instance, in the way, like it's a rel- again, it's a relative righteousness. We're not talking about this perfect righteousness. David's not. He's talking about a relative righteousness. What was the relative righteousness in 1 Samuel 26? How he restrained himself from slaying Saul. He abstained from taking action against Saul. And his faithfulness to Yahweh in the way that he did not depart from the faith, but walked in fidelity towards Yahweh, was rewarded by Yahweh. Now with that being said, let's get into the text. We'll kind of walk through these verses, verses 20 through 24. Look at verse 20. The Lord, or Yahweh, has rewarded me. That word for reward, uh, it's a Hebrew word that could be rendered as dealt with, but reward is fine. It still communicates that idea that God dealt with him according to, as he's going to say, his righteousness. God rewarded him, so you could, you could say that as well. The latter phrase, the cleanness of my hands, right? He rewarded me according to the, my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, speaks of how David did not stain his hands, for instance, with wicked behavior, namely, say, for instance, the blood of Saul. He didn't get the blood of Saul on his hands. He didn't take any kind of wicked action. Hands often connote action. So David didn't take his hand to Saul in the sense of slaying Saul. But David didn't take his hand to Saul metaphorically by beginning a kind of slander campaign against Saul. He entrusted the whole situation to the Lord. The righteousness for which he was rewarded in the sense that he was exalted to the kingship and his enemies were defeated included both the positive actions he took and the negative actions that he refrained from. Look at verse 21. For I have kept the ways of Yahweh and have not wickedly departed from my God. And again, I think this is with respect to David's dealings with his enemies. His behavior towards Saul, for instance, was in keeping with the ways of the Lord. And and, and that's true both before Saul turned against him and after Saul turned against him. You just read it in 1 Samuel and you'll see, wow, David, even before Saul was going after him, and then after Saul was going after him, just acted with righteousness and kindness, restraint towards Saul. He did not act in an evil way so as to provoke Saul's wrath. But then if you look at the second half of verse 21, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. To use language from Hebrews 3.12, he did not have an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Say because of the afflictions that he was going through. Right? You think how David might have been, could have been, tempted to depart from the living God. Say, this is what I get? This is, like, like, I've done nothing good to this man, Saul. Like, like, I, I've done my best to serve him. I've done my best to be a soldier in the way that honors God and honors the king. And this is what I get. I get chased for years, year after year. Right? The thing what is Saul takes back the wife that he had given to David. David loses not only his job, but he becomes a fugitive. His whole life got turned upside down. Have you had life changes in 2022? David had a lot of them when Saul turned his life upside down. And think of all the stress that came with that. Took away, gave him a wife, took away his wife. Tried to get him killed, took away his job, pursued him relentlessly, seemingly day and night. But he didn't depart from God. He did not wickedly depart from his God. Rather, he was consistent by the grace of God in keeping Yahweh's judgments and statutes. Look at verse 22. For his judgments were before me, 
and I did not put away his statutes from me. So quick exposition, so you understand those words. Like, What does he mean by his judgments were before me? Well, judgments in this context here speaks of what God has revealed to be right or wrong. That, that's the idea of what judgments here. Different contexts could have different connotations. That's what it means here. Not only is that a legitimate interpretation of the word, but just look in the context. Note, when you're reading the scriptures, especially Hebrew poetry, if you're not sure what one line means, looking at the line that follows sometimes informs the previous line and vice versa. It's called Hebrew parallelism. It's a form of poetry in which the writer is saying one thing and then reinforcing that thing, maybe augmenting it and building upon it in another way or with a slight nuance in the next line. So judgments here refer to God's revelation of what's right and wrong. And then you get that word statutes. And it basically carries the same idea. The word itself might speak of a law being in place. The Hebrew word for statutes comes from a word that speaks of uh, engraving, something engraved or carved into a rock for permanency, to use language from Alec Moitier. Now note this. I think this is going to get to some great application for us as New Testament Christians. He's saying, all in all, God's law, God's truth, God's revelation of what's right and wrong, it was before my mind. It was in front of my face. I lived with God's revealed will right before my face. More about that in a moment, but see how he says this in another way when he says in the second half of the verse, I did not put away his statutes from me. So it's not only that he kept God's truth before his mind's eye, he didn't take that truth and throw it behind his back. People can do that. Jeroboam did that. God told Jeroboam, you... Then he'll go on to say, 1 Kings 14, 9, have cast me behind your back. It's what God says the wicked do. It's what the wicked do, is cast God behind their back. Psalm 50, verses 16 and 17 reads, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction, and cast my words behind you. It's also something that the professing people of God can do. You look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26. David, however, did not depart from God personally, Psalm 18, verse 21, and he did not put away the word of God from him mentally. This verse, Psalm 18, verse 22. Please, I, I, I plead with you. Be careful when you're tempted to put God's Word behind your back. Be careful when you're tempted to sin and you're like, well, i got to move the Bible because I don't want the Bible in front of me. You might remember, maybe some of you do, I remember when I was younger, whether it were cartoons or sitcoms, uh, sometimes there would be those moments in the cartoon or in the show where a certain character would be tempted to do something wrong. And then all of a sudden, there would pop up on one shoulder a supposed angel-like figure. And then on the other shoulder, there would pop up a supposed devil-like figure. Right? Maybe you've seen these things. And the angel-like figure, supposedly, is saying, like, don't do this. You don't want to do that. It's not going to be a good thing if you, you know, do whatever you're going to do. And then the supposed devil-like figure is like, no, it'll be fine. Like, do this, do this. 
And then you might recall some of those instances where all of a sudden, like, the person gets, like, a weird look on their face, and they're like, yeah, and they kind of throw the supposed angel figure, like, out of the way. And when I'm reading this text, I'm like, you know, it's one thing to imagine that with, like, you know, these supposed representations of reality that do not represent reality rightly. But it's a scary thing to do that with God, to do that with His truth. So I just, want, I just want to plead with you. This is just simply a loving pastoral plea. Every one of you, myself included, we're all going to be tempted to sin against God. And if you are a Christian, you know that you have been forgiven by the grace of God through the blood of Christ. So I'm not talking, what I'm about to say is not a matter of keeping your salvation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about walking in the salvation you have. And I'm talking about the seriousness of sin, even as a saved Christian. Keep God's word in front of you. Don't throw it behind you. Keep it right there. Do not lie. Put off lying. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet your neighbor's possessions. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Avoid sexual immorality. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Keep it right in front of your face, please. When you're tempted to sin, you're like, I just want to shut it down. I can't have that there because if I have that there, I'm going to feel even worse. No, keep it right there. Because what you need when you're tempted by darkness is you need light. God's Word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And when you're feeling tempted to sin against Him in one way or another, keep it there. Don't throw Him behind you. Not because I'm saying if you're a Christian, you're going to lose your salvation. No, because you've been bought by the blood of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Don't throw God's Word behind you. Keep it there. Even if it hurts. Even if it feels uncomfortable. Keep it right in front of your face. Keep hearing it. Keep hearing it. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Keep it right there. I would also say this. This is just an additional pastoral um, application uh, for you, I would think. If you find yourself struggling in one of those situations, I do think, per Proverbs 28.13, it is so wise to not keep it to yourself. I think it's so wise to confess it. To confess it to someone. Proverbs 28.13 is rather clear that sin is not to be covered. Sin is to be confessed. And I know it's hard, but do it. And I just want to say this. Just Again, this is just a little bit of extended pastoral application. I want to say this. In this room, if there's somebody that you have been sinning against and they do not know it, even if it's a husband or a wife, tell them. Please confess your sin. Don't hide from it. Husband, if you've been sinning against your wife in some way, don't keep it from her. Tell her. Wife, if you've been sinning against your husband in some way, don't keep it from him. Tell him. Child, if you've been lying to your parents, and if your parents are still living inside of, in light of some lie that you've told them, and they don't know the truth, and you've deceived them, and they've never known the truth, I plead, don't do it. Confess. Confess your sin. Embrace the light. Don't live in concealing darkness. I just want to extend this just a little bit further because I think it's so important for us to 
as the people of God to seek to walk in uprightness and holiness. And I think we see an example here in the Old Testament text of how that's important. And if it was important for David, how much more is it important for us who have greater resources than even David did because we're new covenant Christians with greater promises and the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of all of us who believe in the gospel. I want to draw some examples from a, uh, a couple of individuals that were quoted in Spurgeon's Treasury of David. And so here's the application. I'm going to use some of the examples that this, uh, these writers had used. Think of whatever that sin is that's besetting you. And you look in the scriptures, you have an example of like Judas, right? Judas chose the money bag over Christ. You look at the rich young ruler, and instead of following Christ, he went away sad because he wouldn't sell his possessions, give what he would gain from that to the poor and follow Jesus. So you had one person who loved the money bag, you had another person who loved all of his stuff and didn't want to lose it. What is it to you? What is that thing or those things that you have to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you have to mortify? And if you were to say, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I mortify that thing? I think one of the ways you do it is by confessing it. I think that's one of the ways you do it. Get God's Word in front of you. Don't put His statutes away from you. Keep them right in front of you. Let the Word of God renew your mind. And then if you have to confess something, you confess it. And you live like Paul strived to live with a clear conscience before God and man. A little bit more. I told you I'd be mindful of the time in light of um, the opening uh, teaching during the announcement period. So I'll be mindful about that. Let's go through verse 23. And uh, in verse 24, and then maybe I'll make a brief comment at the end about the verses that we'll pick up on next week. In verse 23, David wrote, I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. The word for blameless in the Hebrew that's used here, tamim, uh, interesting word. It's a word that can mean complete or sound. It can speak to, again, use language from Alec Mortier, wholehearted commitment. It could speak to perfection when speaking of God, but usually when it's used, uh, we're, not, we're not seeing it used in that context. It, it's used to speak of Noah. Noah was blameless, Genesis 6-9. Job was blameless, Job chapter 1, verse 1. It's how God called Abraham to walk, to walk blameless before him. God commanded him to walk like that, Genesis 17-1. Thus, what does it mean? It basically means walking in integrity and above reproach. David also says here, and I kept myself from my iniquity. No specific iniquity is in view here, but the idea would be, again, like taking matters into his own hands, vengeance, exercising vengeance upon Saul, departing from God because of the providence in his life and becoming bitter and sinfully angry with God and others. He kept himself away from those things. And by God's grace, we will too. There's an important aside here, and this, I think, is pretty neat. We'll see this when we get there, but later on, in, Proverbs, in Psalm 18, verse 32, David would say, God, and he goes on, he says, makes my way blameless. See, the word, the word there is, it might be rendered perfect in, uh, in, a tra- in our translation that we're going on, uh, but the same Hebrew word, tamim. I mean, God makes my way blameless. 
And now, if you look in the context, it, it's a militaristic context, which is amazing. It's like he talks about how God empowered him. God is the one who empowered him for all the feats that he accomplished. But he also says, God makes my way blameless. And I think the application would extend beyond just the military context. But God ultimately is the one who made David's way blameless. David knew, see, this is important. David, David knew that David could fly off the handle. You know how I know David knew that? Because we see him fly off the handle. Remember 1 Samuel 25? Remember what happened with Nabal, the man whose name was Fool? And then David wanted some food for himself and his men, and he had protected Nabal's stuff and Nabal's property and so on. And then Nabal gives a very harsh response by extension, by proxy to David and his men. And David is like, men, get your swords on. We're going. And he's ready to exit. He withheld himself from vengeance against Saul, but he was ready to take vengeance out on Nabal or Nabal. But by God's providence, Abigail kind of stood in the gap, that godly woman that she was. So David knew. David knew that he was prone to wander. David knew he could sin. And I love that idea when he says right here, I was also blameless before him. I love connecting that with verse 32. God made my way blameless. You know, it's like drawing language from Psalm 119 when the psalmist says, enlarge my heart that I might run in the path of your commandments. Maybe there was a recognition of the need for God's work even in old covenant saints. They weren't doing this of their own power and accord. And then in the last verse, which by the way, notice, look at verse 20 and then look at verse 24. There's kind of a bracket for this section. Um, kind of verse 20 is saying basically what verse 24 is saying. So it kind of brackets the section. Sometimes you see that in Hebrew poetry. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. And again, as we saw, David's deliverance resulted from God's gracious dealing with David. And David, as a result, just walking righteously. And God rewarding David according to his dealings. I do want to just make some applications for us. I think it's important to remember. uh, Here are some takeaways from verses 20 through 24. I think it's important to remember that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, some suffered for righteousness' sake and were not delivered from temporal death, right? Because David is saying this here doesn't mean like, oh, this is the status quo for every Old Testament believer, No, the Old Testament clearly reveals that. It's a principle. It's how God often works. David is actually going to use this as a springboard for teaching in the verses that follow. We won't get there today, but in verses 25 and 26, he's basically saying, in light of how God dealt with me, let me give you some principles on how God deals with people generally. But God doesn't deal with everybody the same. We see that in the New Testament. Look at Acts chapter 12. James is beheaded early on in Acts chapter 12. Peter is delivered. James beheaded under Herod. Peter delivered from Herod, both in Acts chapter 12. God deals with his servants differently. Look at Elijah, the prophet. He's taken up to heaven in a chariot. Then look at Elisha, a man that God used to do so many miracles, yet he dies of an illness. See, God deals differently with his people. And God may have, at times... Different purposes. And God is glorified in the persevering faith of a suffering saint. And there are times when the deliverance that God brings is in association with the righteous behavior of the righteous. It's just part of the way it works. 
God will deal differently with people. Sometimes he'll bring deliverance despite our sin, temporally speaking. And sometimes he brings it in accordance with obedience. That's not just an Old Testament doctrine. Um, Obedience can make a big difference in one's life. And I think sometimes as New Testament Christians, knowing that we are not saved by obedience, but we are saved by grace through faith, and it's because of Christ's obedience, his perfect sacrificial death on our behalf, that we're saved, that we can downplay the importance of obedience. But I want to remind you, you might just think of Old Testament texts, like when Abraham was told, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Genesis 22, verse 18. Or we might think of much of the Proverbs that show the causal ripple effects of obedience or disobedience. But remember, in the New Testament, you have verses like, you have not, because you ask not. Right? Like, there's things that you won't have, say like wisdom, right? I think it was the Gibeonites in the Old Testament that Joshua was deceived by, the Gibeonites. And in the context, we're told it's because he didn't pray and they didn't like seek God for wisdom. They got deceived. You didn't ask for wisdom. You didn't ask for direction. You got deceived. And we can undermine that. We could just be so grace-minded that we could forget that there are ripple effects of obedience in our lives. That if you're not praying, if you're not seeking God, maybe you're not experiencing the the joy or the deliverance from a, a certain thing or this or that because you're not seeking God in prayer. You have not, perhaps, because you ask not. We have to remember New Testament texts as well. Confess your faults to one another that you might be healed. Maybe you're just struggling with something privately for so long and you need to confess that sin to someone else. Maybe the person that you have been sinning against. But you just want to fix it before you tell them. Tell them. That's how you begin to fix it. And if it's someone that you haven't sinned against, nonetheless, confess your faults to somebody. They need to know. Not so much for them, but for you. We forget texts like this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. I mean, it's just, it's just saying that there are things that will happen or not happen as a result of things that either do or don't happen. So I think this text is a great reminder for us that grace is not an excuse for disobedience or spiritual lethargy. Grace is the highest motivation for obedience. Grace is your motivation for obedience. Forgiveness, being joined to Christ, these are the highest motivations for obedience. Not just like, I hope God delivers me temporarily if I obey Him. No, no. But you know there are going to be ripple effects for obedience. Just very simply, just to put it like this before I close. Very simply. You know this. If you walk in disobedience to God, do you think that that path that you're going on is going to be a good one? If it is a real, if it feels good temporally, that's scary. Because God chastised those whom, that he loves. But do you think it's going to be a good one? Don't, don't you think you're going to maybe sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind? But don't you think if you walk down the path of obedience, even if your path is hard, even if you're persecuted, even if you go through difficult providences, don't you just have this greater confidence that I know God's working all things together for my good and I know that I'm not under His chastening hand with respect to this or that, or at least I don't think I am. I have a clear conscience before God. Obedience makes such a difference. The path of obedience is one that God furnishes with so many blessings. And the path of disobedience is is a dangerous one on many levels. And I want you to note here that David walked in fidelity in the midst of hardship. In the midst of hardship. I'm going to end there at this point. 
um, given the time. But I do want to say, if you look ahead to the verses that we have to cover, oh, there's so much hope. And there's so much coming in this text. Um, my closing thought will just say this. I, w- I came in today excited to give a little bit of a word of hope for you who are here from uh, verse 28. And I won't exposit it, but I want to read it. For you will light my lamp, and the Lord my God, or Yahweh my God, will enlighten my darkness. I want to just close with saying that because I know that some saints are going through times that are difficult, uh, very difficult and fearful. And I think that's a verse that you can kind of just grab onto and just say, I'm trusting that the Lord will lighten my lamp, that He will lighten my darkness. And as He does, He's going to give me wisdom concerning what to do. He's going to give me hope when I feel despair. He's going to pick me up when I feel despondent. I just trust, I have this confidence that the Lord God will lighten my darkness. And if you haven't come to this place, the most important place to first come is to trust God to deal with the darkness of your sin. That's where it all begins. David could walk in righteousness because by grace through faith he had already been made righteous. You can't even walk in righteousness by God's definition of walking in righteousness unless by grace through faith you've been made righteous. And the only way to be made righteous in the sight of God is by believing God's Word Namely, the Gospel. Believing that you are a sinner. That you are darkness. But you could be made light in the Lord, to use language from Ephesians 5, verse 8. And the only way that a person who is described by God as loving darkness, or walking in darkness, or being darkness, the only way that you could exile darkness is by receiving He who is the light of the world, receiving Him who is the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And when you believe that Jesus Christ is not only the light of the world, but the only way in which your sins could be forgiven, there you go in beginning to walk in newness of life and light. And then in all your situations, you can say, I'm trusting God to lighten this temporal darkness because He's already handled the biggest problem I have, my sin. And how do you do that? You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died for your sins. You repent of your sin. You say, I don't want to live in rebellion anymore. Jesus is Lord, not just lip service. It's the conviction of my heart. I believe it. I don't want to live in rebellion. I'm not the Lord of my life. I'm off the throne. I vacated the throne. The throne is empty for a moment because I'm recognizing that Jesus is on the real throne. The throne that I had, the pseudo throne, it's empty. And if anything, metaphorically speaking, I'm recognizing now that Jesus is on the right throne, is on the throne in my life. So with that being said, we got more to cover in Psalm 18, but Lord willing, we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, oh, thank you for your truth. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the way in which you search us and you probe us, Lord, that you are the one to use language from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you're the one who tries the reins of the heart, Lord. You don't just see outwardly as man sees, but you see, Lord, the depths of us. And to think that you see the depths of us, yet you still love us, is amazing. We thank you for the Gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, we do ask, Lord, that with respect to 
Um, our interactions with others, both inside the family of God and outside of the assembly of believers, that you might find us, Lord, walking in a blamelessness, Lord, in a blameless way. Father, if there are crooked ways that need to be made straight, may you find us, Lord, confessing those ways to you, perhaps confessing those ways to others where needed and appropriate, and may you find us walking in the light of life afresh, Lord. Oh, Lord, I know that you desire the purity of your people practically. And Father, we pray that through the text that we've studied today, that you will help us, Lord, to walk in that practical purity. We thank you for the gospel soil from which the fruits of righteousness spring. We know that in and of ourselves, Lord, we have nothing good that dwells in our flesh, but our confidence is in you. Even as David will go on to describe, you are the one who enabled him, Lord. You are the one who made his way blameless. You are the one who provided empowerment and enablement. So I pray, Heavenly Father, for all of your people that there might be, through your word today, by your spirit, fresh measures of enablement and power to walk in the path that you have carved out for them. And Father, if it be your will, Lord, perhaps there be those who this day would come to a saving knowledge of the righteous one, the one who is perfectly righteous and the only one through whom we could have any relative righteousness in your sight, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.